With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I want to say thank you to the Iowa Pork Producers for coming on and being a sponsor of the Hawkeye Nation podcast. The Iowa Pork Industry, including production, processing, and packing, provided more than 141,000 jobs in 2015. That's about the total combined populations of Ames, Ankeny, and Coralville, with nearly 52% in production. And the pork industry contributed over $750 million in state and local taxes in 2015. Iowa, get this, Iowa produces a third of the hogs raised in the United States and is the nation's leader in pork production and more than 90% of Iowa's hog farms are family owned. So thank you to the Iowa pork farmer. Thank you to the Iowa pork consumer. Visit their website at iowapork.org. Pour one more beer for me. Exile means quality. So savagely. Best beer in all the land. Brewed with a loving hand. From bottle, keg, or can. Exile Brewing. E-X-I-L-E. For me. E-X-I-L-E. Let's drink. Crack open a Zoltan today. Enjoy your exile. HN Podcast. Miller and Dace. Going to talk college football coaching carousel, Steve. I actually think, you know, this year might be wind up being one of the all-time zanies. Yes. It, it certainly is relative to the past. But going forward into the future, I don't know that we'll hit the zaniness level with the total uh, crack house dumpster fire meltdown that is ongoing, that is Tennessee, in the future. But I think with this new early signing period, as you predicted this summer, we will see more coaches jettisoned in season than ever before, which will likely set up a more entertaining, silly season, if you will. But nothing to the level of, of this year. I, this, is, this is one for the record books. Let's begin not in Lincoln. Let's begin in Tennessee. As, as we record this, they still don't have a coach named, although they did name an athletic director. Because they fired John Curry, who was recently named to that position not all that long ago, but bungled things so badly. And maybe the last straw was that he tried to fire, he went rogue and tried to hire Mike Leach. Apparently that they cannot abide that down there. And he was fired and replaced by your boy, Philip Fulmer. I'll let you elaborate on your fondness for this move. Well, you're right about the zaniness, and to put that, just to give our, just to start off giving our audience a big picture view. In the last three years now, with with Florida State being open, with Jimbo Fisher jumping ship, in the last three years we have now had 35 of the 65 Power Five jobs change hands. Ten of those in the SEC alone, and depending on what Florida State does. Like if they hire a Willie Taggart out of Oregon, well, then we'd have the 36th opening at Oregon. 
And then depending on what they do, we have, might have the 37th opening. Depending on what Arkansas hires, we might have the 36th or 37th opening. Uh, and we haven't even gotten to, the, is the NFL going to come after a Brian Kelly or somebody else? So we have seen unprecedented levels of coaching turnover. And the SEC is leading the way with that because, you know, they pay huge money for their coaches and everybody's tired of losing to Nick Saban. And they poach one another's coaches, which yes. is just unbelievable. Yeah, and this, and this isn't a new thing. I mean, when when – when when Auburn hired Tommy Tuberville, they hired him away from Ole Miss. So this is not a new thing in the SEC. I mean, Bear Bryant left. Well, it's in I the know SEC it's now. just it's just it's still yeah. one of those things. Like, oh my gosh, no it's wonder they, they hate each other down, down there. there. Yes, you're right. But what's happened at Tennessee is is Phil Fulmer. The only thing missing here is if Phil Fulmer has fu for Frank Underwood cufflinks. That's the only thing missing here. Phil Fulmer has has pulled off the ultimate house of cards move. It may be in the history of college football. Um, the guy who probably voted Michigan fourth in the 1997 final coaches poll, which gave Nebraska the margin it needed to pass us in the final poll so Tom Osborne could get a, a share of a national championship on his way out the door. So this is a, this is a Michigan, a deep state Michigan conspiracy? <laughs> That's been a... It, well, we we know if you do the math, this is it actually it came out of this that they started disclosing how coaches voted in the last poll. It came out of this year. We know if you do the math, someone had to have voted as fourth for us to finish behind Nebraska. So we're trying. It's always been a contention who would do such a thing, and it's always been believed. I don't know if it's urban legend or not. It's been a, it's believed in Michigan circles that it was Phil Fulmer. That being said, I've always liked Phil Fulmer. Now he, but he's done this before. He knifed Johnny Majors. And you know, I don't think he and Johnny Majors have spoken since 1989. Did you say he knifed? You know? He knifed him. He knifed Johnny Majors out of that job Damn. years ago. Years ago. Okay. So don't ask Johnny Majors what he thinks about Philip Fulmer. You won't. You won't get a. You won't get a, a nice reply there. And Johnny Majors is Mr. Vol. So Phil Fulmer, for all the aw shucksness, is Frank freaking Underwood, but his magnum opus. Is what he's done here. Because <laughs> what 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 he did here is in, when he was let go in 2008, the the assistant athletic director who carried out his firing was a young Tennessee administrator by the name of John Curry. Mike Hamilton was the AD in t- Tennessee at the time. John Curry was his chief lieutenant, the vice principal, basically. John Curry was brought back from Kansas State this fall. He was he was brought or this summer he was brought in. That was eight months ago. So this spring he was brought in to be the new Tennessee AD. And what Philip Fulmer did, if this isn't vengeance, then this is one hell of an act of serendipity. Is the same guy that was that that knifed him eight years ago. He ended up knifing back and taking his job as athletic director this past week. And this level of skullduggery, um, you know, I'm not a huge Game of Thrones person. I know tons of people that watch it. I tried the first few episodes of season one, and I just hated everybody. I'm getting – as I get older, man, I'm getting softer. If there's 
I can't do nihilism. It, it, to me, I found it to be Lord of the Rings without the redemption and all, and 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 with Skinamax and no redemption. I, I, they were just killing to kill and fighting to fight. You know what I'm saying? It was just different clans of J.R. Ewing's, and I just couldn't get into it. But that's kind of what it seems like went down here. And now Fulmer is in charge, and he will make the hire. And the Tennessee fan base is the most united it's been this past week. As I said on this podcast last Sunday, I don't have a problem with them not wanting Greg Schiano. I, I, I don't think he's that great of a coach. I mean, when has Greg Schiano been brought up for all these openings the last few years? Answer, never. What I didn't appreciate, though, was using third-hand hearsay evidence to link a guy to a sordid scandal so you defame his character in public and you blow up his brand because you want you use that as your meaning as your means of, of not putting up with him as your head coach. I thought that was terrible, and it's done terrible collateral damage to them as a program, and it's why they can't hire a coach and they're starting all over again. And so now we'll see what the true fallout is. Um, and I think we probably won't know that until we see ultimately who the head coach is. But however tough you thought that job was, it's much tougher now. And when you look at Florida getting Dan Mullen, I, I think Dan Mullen's a really good coach. I don't think he's a great coach, but I think he's a really good coach that knows Florida. He was there under Urban Meyer. I think he'll do a very good job. And his M.O. is developing quarterbacks. And that's something Florida has not done in many years. And when you talk about A&M, you know, we've wondered for years, is A&M overrated or a sleeping giant? They have had only one season this century where they've gotten double-digit wins in the regular season. That was Manziel's Heisman season. In fact, they, that's their only double-digit victory season total um, since 1998. Now, in their old Southwest Conference days, they were they finished in the national top 10. I went back and looked it up, and I think it was 85, 87, 92, 93, 94. So towards the very end of the old Southwest Conference, they were a nationally prominent program. But that's going back well over 25 or well over 20 years now. And so the question with A&M has been, are they overrated or are they a sleeping giant? Well, we will now find out because they have hired one of the truly elite coaches in the game, one of the only four national championship coaches in the game, and he has every resource you could ever imagine at his disposal. And um, what that means if you're a Tennessee is the price of poker in your conference was already expensive. But with Dan Mullen, with, with, with trading Jim McElwain for Dan Mullen, with trading Kevin Sumlin for Jimbo Fisher, and we don't know who Arkansas is going to hire yet, Gus Malzahn staying on at Auburn with Kirby Smart is building at Georgia. You know, um, Kentucky and Vanderbilt are better than they ever were when Philip Fulmer was coaching Tennessee. Whatever, whatever, wherever you ranked the Tennessee job and difficulty a month ago, it's harder now for sure. Indeed. I mean, Jimbo Fisher's contract, I mean, it's the biggest free agent contract in collegiate sports history. I mean, Nick Saban might make $8 million or more a year. I'm not sure what the number is now. But he wasn't hired in at that. This is the easily the largest hired coming in first contract of any coach in college athletics history. So that is uh, that is something. It was, it was funny watching... 
Aggies fans uh, informed Twitter on why they could afford the buyout by quoting what Permian Basin shale break-even values are of crude oil down there. <laughs> and I was chuckling at that because that's kind of in my wheelhouse. That's but, your uh, wheelhouse, right? They've, they've got plenty plenty of cash right now, and they have those barrels. By the way, if you want to hire an AD, go hire Scott Woodward at A&M. Here's his last two head coaching hires. He brought Chris Peterson to Washington and Jimbo Fisher to A&M. Think he knows what he's doing? It's not too bad. I kind of think he does. And, and what he rec- well, Steve, he's got seventy-five million. Listen, you you know why he 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 had a prior relationship with Jimbo Fisher, and the relationship combined with that money, they recognized this had to be a guarantee. Had to be. They have spent a half billion dollars the last couple of years upgrading that program. They're sitting there in Nick Saban's division. They re- he they knew they had to make a home run higher. And they did. And I, I I think that's an incredible hire for them. I think UCLA getting Chip Kelly, although I have to say, what I'm seeing so far from the staff he's putting together, it, it just – I haven't – and I'll defer to him. He knows more about what he's doing than me. But it really hasn't blown me away. It, they've been a lot of unheralded guys. But those are the two hires that I think are the big story – um, and now you throw in Scott Frost in Nebraska, and I was glad. To me, that's big for the Big Ten. Uh, we need them to be great in football. Who's we? They, they offer they, we is in the Big Ten. They they offer the league nothing else. They're not a great academic institution. They're not any good in men's basketball. They don't bring in any major television networks. Nebraska, with they're not going to be dominant in football. You know, we've talked about this before. If the Big Ten was expanding right now and Iowa wasn't in the league, would they put Iowa in the league? No. No. That's what Nebraska is if they're not going to be great in football. They are a loss leader. They offer us nothing. Yeah, and, and so I'm hoping uh, that uh, Scott Frost um, will do something about that. And I have to tell you, you know, I wasn't always a fan of him when he played, mainly because even though we didn't play them, you know, um, we openly – we're competing for voters in the AP and coaches poll back in the day. But I got to tell you, man, I have just greatly respected just as a man, the way he has handled his business the last few weeks um, with all this speculation and, and his pick of jobs. He hasn't glory hounded it at all. He's put his players first at central Florida. Um, and you see the way they've played their two best opponents of the year back to back. The way they won both of those games, getting those two teams' best shots in South Florida and Memphis, the emotion his players had for him after the game, knowing that he was going to leave. The willingness to coach that team and the school saying, absolutely, come in and do it, and Nebraska going along with that. Um, The way he laid down the law today, or Sunday, to the Nebraska media, leave my family alone. Don't follow my kids around. Stop! Don't bug my mom or my wife. You know, mm-hmm. he gets to do that. He gets to lay those markers down because he's Scott freaking Frost. I'm not sure there's any other coach they could have hired, no matter their resume, even Chip Kelly, that could do those things because they don't have the, the goodwill in the bank with the, with the media, the community, and the fan base. So I, I've just been incredibly impressed with the with him as a man and the way he's handled his business and so so far i I mean i like the hire that florida made but i think the three big winners are nebraska ucla 
and uh, Texas A&M for sure. Well, you knew that Scott Frost was going to win the press conference because he's a native son. Now, I will uh, – and I, I think Nebraska fans have every right and reason – to be over the moon ecstatic. I, I don't know if this will work out the way that a lot of them think it's going to work out, but I know that you and I are certainly uh, much less skeptical of this than we were when they hired Mike Riley as we recorded a podcast on December 4th, 2014, nearly three years, well, exactly three years ago to the day that this podcast will drop. Three years ago to the day, we were basically saying that you said it was the worst major program hire maybe of all time and turned out to go right into the dumpster fire that you used as a term at that time because at that time, dumpster fire was your favorite term. New hotness is it now. Um, So (laughs) I think that uh, Nebraska fans enjoy the heck out of this. I mean, if if the roles were reversed, I would probably be over the moon ecstatic right now to believing that if anybody can do it, it's going to be somebody like Scott Frost. But what makes my freaking skin crawl? And I've never, ever tried to shy away from the fact that I'm an Iowa fan. I openly say that I'm an Iowa fan. But I try to call and analyze things as straight as I possibly can, which has gotten easier the older that I've become. But realistically, it's gotten easier because I no longer care about what people think of me. And that also comes with age. You just you stop caring about what people might think or what parties you're going to get invited to or what little cabal cliques you're going to be in. I stopped caring about that when I lived in Des Moines and I certainly don't care about it now living in Oklahoma. What drives me crazy and maybe drives my Nebraska angst, period, are the keepers of the eternal Husker flame, a.k.a. the Nebraska print media. They just chat my but Stephen M. Sipple from the Lincoln Journal Star tweeting out uh, the billboard uh, at Memorial Stadium that had Welcome Home on it in Scott's face and, and basically saying, you know, in his tweet said, I've got goosebumps. I mean, what the hell? I mean, I'm serious. If a, if, if a writer from the Des Moines Register or Cedar Rapids Gazette would have done something like that, Iowa fans would have freaking ridiculed that guy. In Nebraska, goes back to what we talked about. Put another log in the fire. This week. It's not bias. That, that, it's not his bias. It's the lack of professionalism. That's not professional. You're a fan, and that's okay. But you that's know, okay if you run HawkeyeNation.com. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, I told you. I saw these these guys. They, I watched them stand up to the fight song for the fight song. I've always thought Price you were pulling box. my leg on this. No, I wasn't. I saw it with my own eyes. These guys are. It's, it, they're, the media contingent there is unbelievable, and that's part of their problem. But and, and I think he recognizes that, and that's meaning Frost now. And I think that's why he laid down some of those markers at his press conference on Sunday, and he's going to get away with that uh, for a while. He's got a year or two where, if if they become a, if the media becomes a distraction, he will get to call them out. And the fan base that needs that oh, feeding yeah. frenzy of that from the media will side with him no over doubt. them. But if they're seven and five, eight and four, a couple of years in a row or worse, we get to year three, you know, 
and people aren't going to be as inclined to, you know, um, give you the benefit of the doubt. But, but that's but that's the world in which we live in today. You don't get five year five years now. Three years is the new five for a head for a new head coach. Three years is the new five, and unless you come in with some goodwill, you don't get you don't get any of those intangibles from the media and the fan base. Frost does, and that gives him a year or two to build to, to that Mike Riley never had, even if he could do the job. Now, one of the things I can tell you, watching that offense, watched when my own school tried to transition to it because they're going to try and transition well, to well, another well, offense. Why, yeah, why don't you lay out what you, kind of offense you think he's going to transition to? Well, they're going to he's going to run a spread offense, but this is not the Urban Meyer spread. This 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 isn't a power spread. It's not the split zone spread. No, this is going to be your Pat White, Rich Rod, Oregon spread. This is going to be speed draws, um, you know, things of that. I mean, the quarterback they have at Central Florida, I haven't seen a kid do this since, remember Darian Hagan in the late 80s with Colorado, mm-hmm. when he'd run downfield on the triple option for 20 yards and pitched to Eric Bieniemy 25 yards downfield. Remember yes, those you, plays? You keep the, it's okay. the, I think it was like called the 4-3 or the 3-4 relationship where you're four yards to the outside and three yards deep. You just keep that relationship running all yes. the way down the field. Nice. Look at you, man. Look at the brain on John. I like that. Used to yes. run the veer back at West Branch High School, bro. Know. So you know what you're talking about. His This Milton kid at Central Florida is the first quarterback I can remember since Darian Hagan. And as soon as I say that, I just watched Russell Wilson do this in the NFL just three seconds ago. But um, <laughs> I, this is this is the, uh, the first kid I've seen do this, not as a fluke. He does this when I watch them every week. That is part. They, they maintain that relationship. All right. So. This will be a completely different offense than what Mike Riley has recruited the last three years. Complete 180. So here's what Nebraska is going to do. They're going to fire Frank Solich in 2002 and have Bill Callahan come in and, and completely change over the scheme. Then they're going to fire Bill Callahan and have Bo Pelini come in and completely change over the scheme. Back to more of a power spread. Then they're going to fire Bo Pelini and have Mike Riley um, recruit to a West Coast pro-style offense. And now they're going to fire Mike Riley and have um, Scott Frost recruit to Oregon's offense from the you know, Chip Kelly and Mike Bellotti days. So here's what I can tell you about that offense. If you have a running threat at quarterback, it's really hard to stop. You don't have to have four-star receivers and things of that nature to be really explosive and effective at it. You just have to have guys, even if they're undersized, that are tough to tackle in space. Because if the quarterback is a running threat, it's really hard to account for that and cover all these little ragamuffin receivers in space. I hate it. I hate it. But if the quarterback is not a great running threat, it's a very pedestrian offense. They have that, that player's not on their roster. He'll have to go out and recruit him, take someone who might be a tailback or something now and change him over. Uh, it's a totally different lineman that you're recruiting. I was Total just going to ask that. Is it is it the kind of lineman that the state typically produces? No, it's not. Not your we're big not hog ta- mollies. We're, we're, no, we're not. We're not talking, um, you know, uh, uh, 
Oh, who's the great center uh, for Nebraska from back in the day that was Remington the Remington or Steincooler? Yeah, Dave. Yeah, we're not talking Dean Steincooler, Dave Remington. The, this is not a road grader offense. You're talking 285, 90-pound power forward-looking linemen that move. A lot of zone blocking, but it's a finesse style. All right, so this will be a massive personnel overhaul for the program. He needs to conduct this massive overhaul of personnel with, I think, the toughest recruiting base of all the traditional powers. But the fact that this is the offense they're going to run may actually help him, meaning that he doesn't it doesn't necessarily take two or three years. That's one of the things that Michigan got caught in is we have several very highly decorated recruit and recruited offensive linemen playing for us. But, you know, Michael on when a, a, a redshirt freshman, uh, these are guys that haven't had the, you know, the three years of development and you need that. I mean, that's what Wisconsin does. That's what Iowa tries to do, except for this year when they had the injuries. But if you're going to run that pro style offense, then you need to have a level of physicality up front that you just not 18 year olds, unless you recruit Orlando freaking pace don't typically have man. And that, you know, it, it takes two to three more years of full time strength and conditioning to develop that. You can get by without that at, with that offense. So that may help him, but they've got to find the trigger man and keep in mind what he did at central Florida. He's the first coach in the history of college football to take a team that went that was winless and in two years have him go undefeated. No one's ever done that before. So don't underestimate him. He's ha- he'll have the Fred Hoiberg factor, meaning the school will let him do things and, and they will do things for him. They haven't really done for a head coach there probably since Frank Solich was at his peak replacing Tom Osborne, and we're going back almost 20 years now. So he's going to have all those intangibles, but – redeveloping this roster and doing it on the fly will will be difficult because he doesn't really have you know stanley morgan jr was arguably the best receiver in the big 10 that's not the model of receiver for an offense like this so uh, it'll be a roster overhaul all over again and that's not even counting that they're just completely lost on defense they have to start well totally over on that side of the when you're running you know let's let's try and do a little transitive here with with the Oregon offense is maybe a little bit of the archetype because i think more people are familiar with Oregon Mike Bellotti days than they are with what Scott Frost has done down at directional florida those are offenses that are quick strikes very, very up-tempo. I mean, insanely up-tempo. They and, attack the middle of the field, which most offenses in the Big Ten do not do. Mm-hmm. And those defenses, um, therefore, are asked to play a lot of minutes. Yep. A lot of minutes. And you're in a division where, and by and large a league, where time of possession is not just another statistic on a stat sheet. It's something that people actually try to win with the mm-hmm. style of play that they play. So, you know, I, I don't know. It's it's going to be really interesting to see. If like, I can, think the black shirts are done. Yeah, for sure. I, I, think, I think in many respects, Scott Frost is, if people forget how hot of a commodity Rich Rodriguez was when Michigan hired him. Well, Bama, he was, didn't he turn Bama down? 
He turned. He took the Alabama job. His wife Rita bought a crimson dress to go to the press conference, and then turned it down. All right. He literally could have had any job in college football. You know, we forget Michigan's search wasn't quite as dysfunctional as Tennessee's after with Carr's retirement with the whole less miles was Ian was out, but it was close. And man, when it remember when we landed with Rich Rod and the conversations you and I had, we we're like, dude, talk about failing up. How lucky we got. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Okay. And Rich Rod called Terrell Pryor before he even t- talked to the West Virginia players about, hey, because he, he was a senior in high school, trying to bring him in as his first quarterback. Well, imagine if Rich Rod had gotten hired at Michigan, but he was not an outsider, but an alum, a beloved former player. Right. He wouldn't have been sabotaged by, right. by Carr. Right. So this is the Rich Rod hire, but with all the intangibles Rich Rod never had. However, that also means even in the best of circumstances – they're not going to return to what Nebraska fans are used to defensively because they can't. The, the style of football they're going to play won't allow for that, even if they are improved. I mean, they played the probably the best defense in the AAC this year, and you saw you know, their game against Memphis on Saturday was last team with the ball wins. Their game against South Florida was last team with the ball wins. They don't believe in running out the clock. They only have one tempo. I mean, they were snapping the ball against Memphis trying to they, – they went from going in for the go-ahead score and having to settle for a field goal to – or they went from the going in for the put-away score. They're going to be up by three touchdowns, but they had to settle for a field goal to now they're in overtime. Why? Because they're snapping the damn ball with 19 seconds left on the shot on the play clock. I mean, th- this is, this is going to be dramatically different than anything Nebraska has ever seen. It will be Rich Rod's style and offense – but with a guy who comes in with the administration behind him to implement it. But that also means they're never going to be, at least not with him coaching this way, what the, what, this will not be a return to the 90s. This isn't going to be grind teams out with 400 yards rushing and you know Jason and Christian Peter coming off the edge uh, with the black shirts and it's 49 to 10. They're going to blitzkrieg a lot of teams athletically, and then when they play the upper echelon in the Big Ten – those are going to be games where probably the first per- first team to 40 wins. And I, I'll be fascinated to see if it, if it when we get into year four and five, if it's not producing major results on the field, how Nebraska fan feels about this. This is not a return of Nebraska's identity. This is not Harbaugh. This is Rich Rodriguez. It's, it's Harbaugh to the extent of it's a favorite son coming home. But Jim was bringing Shim Beckler's right. offense updated from the, for the times with him. This looks like Michigan football again, just without beating Ohio State and Michigan State. <laughs> All right? We're doing everything else that looks like Michigan without beating our rivals. We're not, winning, we're not beating our rivals, but this looks like, it looks like the Michigan we grew up with, right? That's what it looks like. This will not be the Nebraska that Scott Frost played for on any stretch of the imagination at all. It will not be. And I hope Nebraska, I don't know that Nebraska fans fully understand that. I don't think they get that yet. The black and gold unites us all, but then what? Kevin, the flag guy from Heartland Flags here. If you're listening to this podcast, you bleed black and gold. But what comes after the Hawks? For me, it's the Cincinnati Reds and Cincinnati Bengals. Nope, can't explain it. What about you? Packers and Wizards? Pelicans and Sharks? NASCAR and the Jags? 
Bulls, Bucks, and Chargers? Whatever flag you want, we've got it. Jump online to heartlandflags.com and shop our huge inventory of sports teams' flags. You won't find a better selection or better prices anywhere. Guaranteed. And to top it off, free shipping on all purchases at heartlandflags.com. Oh, and that Iowa flag you've been flying since the Hawks last went to the Orange Bowl? Time to step up and freshen up with a new design. Check out our Hawkeye selection when you're shopping for your other favorite team flags at heartlandflags.com, where you'll never pay for shipping. Well, certainly defensively, I think what you're talking about. I mean, there are some there are some interesting. I wouldn't say similarities to the the days of yore, but you did bring up, you know, we talked about whatever the four three relationship, you know, doing the pitch option down the field. One one thing about having a trigger man in an offense like this, that where that quarterback carries the ball so much, better have two. You of better them. have two yeah. of them. Yep. You better have two of them. So it's probably going to take, like you mentioned, it's going to take a few years. I already saw multiple tweets from, from Sunday um, with Scott Frost. Uh, out visiting players, there was one um, defensive line commitment from from nearby. I can't remember if it was Lincoln or Omaha who had verbally committed to Wisconsin, uh, who Nebraska offered. Seen multiple junior college offers, uh, linebacker, offensive lineman. So he's already out hitting the ground running. But yeah, I mean, it's you said earlier, and I, I never got to this, and, and maybe we can conclude with this. You said you want to see Nebraska. You know, it's good for the Big Ten, for Nebraska to be better. I think it's an easy thing to say when you're a fan of one of the blue bloods in the college football pantheon, as Michigan Michigan is. Um, That's fair. I I think when you're not, when you're a fan of, say, Iowa, who doesn't get invited to those parties on a regular basis, who has to work a little harder just to try and compete – I'm quite frankly could care less whether or not Nebraska returns to any glory because that's an obstacle in the Big Ten West to get back to Indianapolis. So I don't share the same opinion that you have in that. And that's why I really didn't ever go along with, you know, it's best for the Big Ten for Michigan to be back up or Penn State to be back up. You definitely, and, and part of that, Steve, is because the Big Ten is what it is. It's a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of communism, if you will, in that they pool their resources, that Iowa gets to, you know, generate 50 some million dollars a year in television revenue, thanks to Ohio State and Michigan. And frankly, if I were you guys at some point in time, I'd be like, hmm, this isn't really equitable. This worked uh, for a long time. It wasn't horrible, but it's a new day and a new era. And boy, we can sure make a lot more money. Is it best to go our own way? And if we do see the end of the conferences traditionally as we know it, it might even be a greater pool of communism with 64 teams sharing all those sorts of things. So, you know, if I were on your side of the fence, I might feel the same way that you feel, but I'm not, so I don't. Um, I don't have a problem with that at all. I, you know, my Big Ten hawkness and shilling has gone by the whatever was left of it ended last November in Columbus with referees slapping Ohio State players on the ass and <laughs> that that snapshot of the one referee looking at Curtis Samuel when he scores the winning touchdown with his mouth open. I, 
Yeah, I want my wife to look at me the way that referee is looking at Curtis Samuel when the kids go to bed, if you know what I'm saying. Okay? Every man should have the blessing of a woman looking at him like that referee looks at Curtis Samuel in that shot. So it'd been, it, I, I told you for years when we were really struggling in football, I just didn't really have the whole rah-rah Big Ten feeling I used to have already. Whatever was left of that ended in Columbus. And, and you know, the way that the Big Ten network operates, it's essentially an extension of Ohio State Sports Information Department. So, uh, I mean, even, even during, as much as I love Jim Delaney's uh, press conference or, or appearance on ESPN today, it opened up with him referring to Ohio State as we before he then corrected himself and then threw in Wisconsin as well. Okay, so um, it's the Buckeye 10, and my interest in Nebraska being good is not that as much as my self-interest as a Michigan fan. If we're going to play each other nine times and the profile that we are going to build for appearances in the playoff or in major bowl games, sure. therefore is going to be built around playing um, each other that many times, then it. I, I don't want to be – Purdue has some nice history. Minnesota has some nice history. Purdue has more recent nice history, obviously. And Purdue in Minnesota historically has actually been in the first you know, half of Big Ten history – Minnesota and Michigan were the dominant programs. And then Ohio State replaced Minnesota. That being said, it means more in terms of branding when Nebraska is really good than it does if Purdue is, or Minnesota especially. If we're going to, not to mention, if we're going to bring another team in that doesn't represent a major television market like Maryland does, or even Rutgers does to some degree, and we're going we're gonna to give them 14% of our or 14th, you know, an equal share of our profits, then they got to produce something more than um, four and eight with Mike Riley. That, that's, that's, that business, that business, uh, Snoop Dogg, that's all straight business. And my interest in them being good is, is if, if they're going to be representative of what, you know, my favorite team schedule is going to look like. And that's the same. I actually think that this could be the best case scenario for a team like Iowa. For as long as you hold on to this identity, and I know it's frustrating at times, and I, I get frustrated with just as a football fan, not with the same emotional vigor because I'm not a fan of Iowa, like many of our listeners are, but I get frustrated for different reasons with some of their game day conservative decision making. Okay, but when you watch Tennessee can't hire a coach, Florida State couldn't keep theirs. When you look at all this turnover. You know, and you look at his record here in Iowa City in the big picture, be very thankful you've had this continuity. It is not a coincidence that the best era of Iowa football coincides with having two football coaches since 1978. Not a coincidence. And as long as you can maintain this brand. Now, continuity wins in college football, but, but not because um, keeping a bad coach around makes him good but because you gave a good coach time to prove he was good and then gave him the resources to stay and continue to be good. So it's kind of the chicken or the egg. You know, you have to win enough to be to have continuity, and then you have to have continuity in order to win. It's a, Those two things are in right, relationship right. with one another. But as long as you can maintain this brand, you're actually a good contrast to Nebraska because 
this is the kind of system. I go back to, you know, when, when Harbaugh came to Stanford and he brought this system, similar to what Iowa runs, to a league running spread offenses and West Coast and, and you know, air raid offenses, nobody thought it could work. Who was the one team Chip Kelly couldn't beat every year? Stanford. And why? They just mauled him at the line of scrimmage. So I, I think this has the potential to be a good opportunity for Iowa in that beating Nebraska would actually matter more if they're better. Mm-hmm. But two, your system provided, you know, um, you're able to maintain it because with and its success level if you're has historically has historically been a good Counter. matchup for what Frost wants to do. Is there any parallel to Denard Robinson? I, I know you did bring up the Rich Rod system earlier. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it, it, I mean, Iowa had a lot of success against Denard Robinson in Michigan. And mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if it was a fluke, but it happened more than once. So maybe that's what you're talking about there. Well, yeah. How, what was the success level? Here was the success level. We're going to play umbrella zone defense. That's our typical defense. And we're going to contain you. Yeah, we're going to contain you. Now, we're not going to load the box so that if we overrun overrun one angle, Denard Robinson houses us. But what we are going to do is we're going to umbrella seven to eight guys within eight to ten yards of the line of scrimmage so that your opportunity to outrun the angle and run for big plays is severely limited. Now, the way to beat that is you have to show us that you can make that down-the-field seam throw. And Denard Robinson just simply wasn't capable of doing that as a collegiate quarterback. And we saw that throughout his career. And now the guy that Central Florida has right now, um, Milton, looks like he can do that. But he's also about 5'9", 5'10", and um, a ragamuffin. That ain't cutting it in the Big Ten, bro. Okay? That that ain't one 330-pound line. Maurice Hurst rolls over on you. Forget it, yeah. He just rolls over on you in the pile, man. And you're like, well, that was my sternum. I'll see you next year. How big was that Scott Frost? Roll. What's that? How big was Scott Frost? Different era, you know. Um, but Frost, remember, played safety in the National Football League. So bigger than that. <laughs> but it was also, also that was a different era. You know, I mean, he was playing um, in a triple option offense. 220-pound linebackers. Yes. 270-pound defensive tackles. Yes. Yeah. That weren't as and, fast as you were. And and you don't have – you're not spreading people out so that it's easier to get a – if you can get a clean shot on somebody, it's easier to do that. What you said is true. I mean, if you're going to run this, you know, uh, you better have two. And it's hard to even find one. That's the, Yeah, it's hard to find one. And that's not a guarantee that your starter is going to get hurt – but the the probability odds of that many hits. I mean, look at JT Barrett. Central Florida was six and six last year with most of these same players. We played them last year. I got a really good look at them. Okay, almost there's a freshman running back who's really good, but there's lots of freshman running backs at lots of places that you can mm-hmm. get. Are good. They're a dime a dozen. The difference between the team we beat last year that went 6 and 6 which was a huge improvement over going 0 and 12 by the way but the big difference from that team to the team that's undefeated is the Milton kid at quarterback that's my point if you have the right trigger man this is a very difficult offense to start to stop finding the right trigger man who's durable to stick to stick is hard that's look at look at Rich Rod Rich Rod's entire career 
at West Virginia was the finding and developing of Pat White. His entire career at Arizona was the finding and developing of a new Solomon who then devolved, nearly cost Rich Rod his, his job at Arizona, transferred to Baylor, and then they found this kid named Khalil T. Tate that took Rich Rod from fired at the end of September to um, an extension. That's that this you can't hide your quarterback in college football, but it, but that's even more prevalent if you're spreading everybody out and the quarterback now must be also the number one throwing and running threat. That guy has to be the best athlete on the field, pound for pound. If he's not, this offense is not very good. If he is, you can't stop the offense. Milton Kidd's a sophomore. Uh, for Central Florida at any rate. You know, would this be a good time to end this podcast with that tweet you sent me with that was titled, For Schools with Lesser Advantages, Impatience Almost Never Pays Off? Because you yes. did mention something about continuity earlier. And you sent this to me uh, this week. And let me just see if I can find Bill uh, Connolly at SB Nation um, sent this out. So it's titled, For Schools with Lesser Advantages, Impatience Almost Never Pays Off. On the heels of 11 and 9 win seasons, Boston College puts Jeff Jad... What was his Jad name? Jadaginski or whatever Jadaginski, it was. yeah, out because yeah. he deigned to interview for other jobs. They were 2-10 and 10 four years later and haven't reached 9 wins since. Ron Zook took Illinois to nine wins in a Rose Bowl in 07 and after a two-year reset got them back to 7-6 and six in both 2010 and 2011. He was fired. Illinois has averaged 3.7 wins per year six. I think the year he was fired, though, they started 6-0, and and then they went 0-6. Mm-hmm. Um, Dan McCarney won at least seven games five times in six-year span at Iowa State, but was let go after a 4-8 downturn in 06. ISU has not topped seven wins since before this year. Mm-hmm. Ralph Friedgen took Maryland to seven bowl wins in 10 years, and after a two-win collapse in 09, rebounded to win nine in 2010. Maryland has averaged 4.7 wins per year since firing him. NC State pushed Tom O'Brien out in 2012 after 24 wins in three years. Their best three-year win total since is 22. David Cutliffe won seven or more games for five straight years at Ole Miss, peaking with a 10-win campaign in 03. But after a 4-7 and reset in 04, he was fired the Rebels with top four wins twice in the next seven years. Pitt pushed Dave Wanstead out after 26 wins in three years. I did not realize that. The Panthers have averaged 6.6 wins per year since. Despite seven ranked finishes in 11 years, Syracuse filed Paul Pascaloni after he hit a dry spell. He went 4-8 in 0-2, then rebounded to 6-6 and in 0-3-0-4. Syracuse went 10-37 under replacement Greg Robinson, has averaged 4.4 wins since Pascaloni. And lastly... The grandfather, Phil Fulmer, took Tennessee to 15 bowls in five SEC title games in 16 years. Won the national title in 98, won at least eight games 14 times. Fell to 5-6 and six in 05, rebounded back to 10 wins in 07, and after a second five-win reset in 08, he was fired. The Vols have hit the eight-win mark just twice in the nine years since. Pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, it goes to that stat I gave you before. Historically, prior to 2009, SC, uh, in SEC games, Tennessee had won 65% of their conference games. 
since 2009, they won 32% of them. Yikes. Um, and first of all, what that tells you, that's just an example of if you're, if you're a college football fan. Right. You've got to be following Bill Connolly on Twitter of SB Nation. I mean, what he does with data and metrics. Now, i got to warn you, he's nutty politically. And I'm not just saying that because he disagrees with me. I mean, he's not just— You have to have a political tolerance to follow him. Yeah, he's not just a lefty. He's a nutty lefty. Like, I saw him retweet Rachel Dolezal. Remember her? Yes. The chick who, who thinks she's she, black. She, identif- she yeah. identifies as black. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I mean, he's not just a lefty. He's a nutty lefty. He's a nutter, okay? But when he's not a nutter, um, the dude's college football data analytics is Nate Silver kind of goodness. I mean, it's just you, you'll get smarter with every college football tweet he sends. He's that good. And this work is just uh, uh, an example of that. And uh, I think that what he points out, I mean, now, I mean, sometimes it works. Okay. I mean, sometimes it it very, sometimes it works. You look at Georgia right now. Hey, all Mark Rick was doing was winning nine or 10 games a year. We want to play for championships. Bam, year two, here they are in the playoff. But for every Mark Rick Kirby Smart, upswing the most difficult hire to make in college football is the the and i think Connolly describes it as the glenn mason hire is that how he describes it in the piece right where glenn mason was winning eight or nine games for years at minnesota when they hadn't done that like right. since the 60s and they got rid of him because they wanted to go to the next level and they can't they haven't been able to do it ever since that is the toughest pull in 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 college football is that higher okay um and for every mark rick kirby smart success story there is a graveyard of athletic directors and fired coaches that show you how difficult it is and the, it's it's and i don't think it's a coincidence that georgia is one of the rare exceptions of it working because one you're talking about a traditional heavyweight in the sport yeah and they recruit Two, like talking- a mother Yes, you're talking about one of the schools with the best recruiting bases in the sport. In fact, more kids were drafted that were in the high schools of Georgia in the last NFL draft than any other state in the union. That includes Florida, California, Texas. Okay, so, you know, they have advantages. Minnesota and the rest of those schools don't have. And I think sometimes you have to learn in life to hit your weight. You know, not everybody should go to college. And rack up six figures of student loan debt when you could have a nice life managing a bookstore, managing a high V, managing a car, you know, a car selling cars and have a nice life. And there's nothing wrong with that, you know, that you didn't have to, you know, pay four hundred dollars a month in student loans for your art design or poli sci degree that you're not doing anything with 20 years later. And I think sometimes if you're Minnesota, you know, I agree that everybody has the right to get better. But sometimes you need to understand what is our better? Who can we really be? And when you when you think outside of what you really are and who you can really be and you start having delusions of grandeur, that's when you get yourself into trouble. And Georgia was able to have those visions because they have natural uh, advantages. Most of the schools that feel stuck in this rut simply don't have. And that's why they're one of the rare success stories. And most of the other schools that don't have the facilities, tradition, recruiting base that they have, have turned into coaching graveyards ever since.
Indeed. Good place to stop this one. Thank you to our sponsors, Exile Brewing Company, the Iowa Pork Producers, and Heartland Flagpoles and Flags. As always, and thanks to each and every one of you for listening to the HN Podcast.